This week of the Tech on Tech podcast, we talk Kubernetes, recap KubaCon 2017 with Red Hat OpenShift developer Clayton Coleman. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. Andrew, get off your phone. Fine. Gosh. Gosh. Try and Never make me stop attention. doing one set of work to do a different set of work. What's this up with is, that? This isn't work. This is fun. Okay, fair enough. All right. So uh, today we're going to talk about, uh, is it Cubicon or KubeCon? What is it? How do you pronounce that? I pronounce it the same as the beginning of Kubernetes. So I do too. But KubeCon. I've heard other pl- people say it's KubeCon. So we're gonna we're gonna get down to that mystery today. That's the that's the cutting question that we're gonna answer. Um, <laughs> Asking the important questions. Yes, we'll talk about that as well as Kubernetes. Um, we've got some special guests here today. So uh, to start off with, uh, we have Jonathan Rippy. Hi, Jonathan. Could you tell us what you do here at NetApp? What, Jonathan? I'm Rippy. Come on, Justin. Oh, I mean, it's Rippy. Yeah, yeah. Everyone calls me Rippy. I grew up with a bunch of Jonathans. Yeah, yeah. I try to offer you respect by using your first name. Thank this you. Is how you treat me? Oh, sorry. No, no offense. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. So, uh, Rippy, if you could uh, explain to the audience what you do here at NetApp and uh, how to reach you on social media. Yeah, uh, so Twitter is at JK Rippy. Um, I'm an engineer here in the open source ecosystem team. Um, I work on Docker and Kubernetes. Um, I've been doing Docker for a long time. I was actually on a podcast, I guess, two years ago or so with you guys, doing a recap of DockerCon EU. Um, I'd say about the very first day that... Docker was released. I downloaded it and started playing with it and uh, noticed that storage was a gap in the early days. So I've been working on our integrations with storage and Docker and Kubernetes um, ever since. And uh, that's an exciting uh, time to be in, in this in this world here. Um, KubeCon was amazing and looking forward to talking more about it. And uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yep, no and, problem. And note that that is at JK Rippy. At Rippy is not. Yeah, that's, this, that's this, not me. Yeah. At JK. Who, who is at Rippy anyway? I, I, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. it's definitely not our Rippy. No, it's an imposter. <laughs> <laughs> also in the studio with us today, uh, no stranger to the podcast, Garrett Mueller. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? So um, I know people don't listen to every episode. Um, so if you could tell us what you do here at NetApp, for those of us who don't know. Well, they should. Um, so I'm a technical director at NetApp. Uh, all the technologies that Rippy mentioned, I'm responsible for from a technical standpoint. So I do architecture work around our integrations with Kubernetes, with Docker, with uh, everything open. So uh, work in the OpenStack and configuration management areas of the business as well. Do you get one of those little like director uh, flappy things? <laughs> you think you asked me that last time? I do. I you ask you this you, every time. Yeah. I don't have any. I don't have I any. Still material. don't have one of those. But usually, Garrett and I have some banter when we do presentations together about yeah. like my title, technical marketing engineer, is an oxymoron because I have marketing and engineering. Right, his is the same because he's both technical and a director. Right, but I mean you're a moron, <laughs> so that works. Oh. You know, ouch. <laughs> if the shoe fits, oh. I, I know, I know my kind. So. Um, Anyway, on the phone today with us is uh, a special guest from Red Hat. Uh, he works on OpenShift. Clayton Coleman, if you could introduce yourself and tell us how to reach you on social media. Sure. So I am an architect for Kubernetes and OpenShift at Red Hat. I kind of have helped um, uh, nurse along the Kubernetes community since um, pretty much it was um, formed in the open. 
uh, help contribute and try to keep everything uh, moving along as a member of the steering committee uh, of Kubernetes. And uh, you can reach me at, at uh, Smarter Clayton on Twitter or Smarter Clayton on GitHub. And uh, glad to be here today. Good to see that consistency of your usernames there. So um, I invited Clayton not just because he knows OpenShift, but because he's my neighbor. He lives like literally two doors down from me. <laughs> nice. You really can't pick your neighbors, can you? No, you can't. How serendipitous. I'm actually, so, I'm so sorry, Clayton. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, we actually don't see each other very much, except for when I'm chasing his cat. Or you're chasing your kid, one of the two. Yeah, one of the two, yeah. Do you ever get them confused? Sometimes. Does he ever chase your kid? That'd be a little creepy, but no. What I mean is, like, does your kid ever get loose and he has to go hunt? He does get he, he does get the bow and arrow out. I mean, hey, don't, dude, he's he's cool. He's, I know where he is. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, so, without further ado, let's start talking about Kubernetes. So, uh, Clayton, you delivered uh, a keynote at KubeCon, 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 CobraCon. So. Could you tell us a little bit about the keynote you delivered and uh, you know what sort of things you wanted to impress upon people as you were delivering it? Sure. So I actually um, split it into two separate ones this year, um, one which is about how Kubernetes should be boring and the other one about everything that's exciting about Kubernetes. And the boring part's really, you know, if Kubernetes becomes more and more important to more people, uh, the responsibility to keep everything working. Um, obviously, if you have a platform that doesn't work, you know, not just the platform's broken, but all the stuff on top of it. So trying to impress upon um, the audience and kind of sketch out some things where we can do a better job of um, being a stable and reliable and, you know, frankly, boring platform, because exciting usually means running around with your hair on fire. Um, the exciting part was more of, you know, what's coming up in 2018, what are some things that people should look out for, um, kind of giving shout outs to community projects that um, in one way or another were kind of pushing the envelope or um, making people's lives easier or taking um, interesting parts, um, some of the ideas in Kubernetes and riffing on them in new and unexpected directions. So it's actually really satisfying kind of from a community perspective to see what people have gone and done and then how that can help change the discussion about what it is that either the community should go do or how people using Kubernetes um, might not realize um, the things that are out there today that can make their lives easier. So Clayton, um, you are a uh, top contributor to the community. Could you tell us a little bit about um, why you feel that you have to com contribute so much and you know, why you think that's important for everyone to contribute? Sure. I, it's interesting, um, right about the time that um, you know, per, my uh, journey with Kubernetes actually started uh, before Kubernetes um, on the OpenShift team, which OpenShift is a um, used to be a very traditional platform as a service. Um, we were actually looking at um, the rise of containers, and we got very involved with Docker early on. We were looking for something better, and so we kind of went through all the the options in the ecosystem. And when Google decided to open source Kubernetes, uh, it was a it was right at the perfect time for us, um, which was we were looking for something new. We had a, a gap where we knew that we could make a big change, go all in on a new technology and um, help make it, you know, something both that will help, you know, maybe the, um, the individual person, you know, running like a few apps themselves, but kind of scale all the way up to, you know, tens of thousands of applications, massive clusters. And so I got, um, I was the first external contributor 
uh, to Kubernetes, and that actually made it really easy to keep my numbers up um, from a GitHub perspective, because when you've been around long enough, um, it looks like you're doing a lot of work, but you really just know everything because uh, you've been doing it so long. I think um, you know early on, it was a really exciting, you know, taking ideas that worked for, um, you know, kind of platform as a service space, so things like Heroku, taking some of those ideas about easily going from you know, source code to running applications without knowing the details, but also on the flip side, you know, down at the Kubernetes level and at the container level, these new ideas of bringing along a full, um, a full Linux uh, containerized environment so you can reproduce the set of libraries, um, your application environment, um, much more quickly than VMs, and much more easily than just installing packages or um, you know, setting up your own complicated uh, you know, archiving system with tar files and so forth. And then in the middle, that Kubernetes layer was really all about um, you know, simplifying down and putting in place patterns that worked at extreme scale, or you know, based on experience um, from some of the folks at Google that have been involved for a very long time with Kubernetes, would work at extreme scale, but also work really well for people just running, you know, 10 or 15 containers in a production environment. And so I kind of, um, you know, that early phase was a lot of experimentation and taking ideas that we were pretty sure were going to work. And then as Kubernetes took off, um, there was, you know, a growth in community. And so a lot of what I do today is, um, in the last year or so, is trying to kind of be the go-between between the different parts of Kubernetes and helping, um, you know, helping make sure that the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, and um, helping advise and uh, bring new users on board, make sure that there's a good foundation for people to work with. So, um, you know, I, I still get to code and I do a lot of code reviewing, but um, a lot of it is just trying to make the community successful, um, because everybody out there, you know, who is probably listening to this, who even knows what Kubernetes is, probably uses Kubernetes at some point in their lives, maybe without even realizing it. And that sort of dependence on Kubernetes means, you know, it's really important that this community be functional and effective and, you know, is able to fix bugs and uh, deliver new features, but also be a stable platform for everybody to use. So you mentioned that there's this been this kind of like insatiable need for a platform like this and this unexpected maybe I don't know maybe it was expected growth was there a, a particular point over the last uh, few years or so it's almost three years old now right uh, where you where you realized this was going to be a big deal something that stands out to you I think the first KubeCon was somewhat surprising so and I call it KubeCon so I'll say from a pronunciation perspective nobody's right because <laughs> apparently I've been informed that Kubernetes is actually produced or pronounced um, Kubernetes what? Uh, in the original <laughs> Is that like the so, Dutch pronunciation or it's Greek? The original Greek pronunciation, apparently, <laughs> and I'm not a linguistics expert, so I'm I might even have butchered that. So everybody's wrong. Call it whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. KubeCon. Um, that first KubeCon, um, it was a I think there was five hundred people there, and it was a lot of startups and early adopters. Uh, it was people who were getting value out of it. It was really exciting. I think that was when I first um, was pretty confident that this was going to succeed. I was surprised by the number of people who showed up. I was surprised by where people were already deploying, you know, the very early versions of Kubernetes and OpenShift in production environments. Um, you know, I can't exactly say, but I'll say probably most people today um, 
during their daily lives, stuff that they're doing touches a Kubernetes system at least five, ten times, um, you know, wherever you go. And so even early on, there was a lot of really, uh, really exciting adoption. And so I think that first KubeCon was really when I realized it. And then this last, you know, two years has gone. It's just been pretty crazy since then. Um, every time I'm just surprised by the number of people who are like, oh, yeah, we use Kubernetes for, for X or for Y, and I would have never expected it. Yeah, so this been it's been a, a a very surprising I think ride for all of us. You know, we were uh, also involved early on with with the Docker stuff. Uh, moved on to Kubernetes pretty quickly based on what you know, basically where customers were going. We we followed the, the tools that they're using, um, and the um, amount of attention that, that that Kubernetes has garnered, even in our own install base, which many people would consider to be for a lot of them more traditional, has been has been pretty surprising. Uh, they're, they're really, you know, experimenting with it on the four and, uh, you know, we're trying to help them do that. Um, but you mentioned that, you know, it, or pretty early on, you noticed this, this was, this was going to, uh, to be a big deal. And now it obviously is right. I mean, it's, it's just plainly obvious. Maybe you have arguably the first or second biggest platform in this, in this community, the community that we have together. Um, and, I'm just wondering, like, so so it's great that we've gotten all the all this attention, and uh, and people are really making use of it. Now what? I mean, now how do we deal with that? I mean, what are some of the challenges that that come about when you have a, a community of of that size? I mean, I know we we've brought GitHub down to its knees to some extent. I mean, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's the largest open source project, maybe behind Linux. I think I've heard somebody say um, itself. So how do you how how do we deal with the scale both on a tech, from a technology standpoint but as well as from in terms of human capital and what, and what they're doing so I think the technology one is probably the easier question um, and you know we hit the wall pretty early on as Brian Grant likes to say Brian Grant from Google who's one of the, the architects for kubernetes um, from the Google side and Brian said you know we're very early on we kind of hit a wall we we were Everyone was contributing, and we kind of hit this max uh, uh, contribution rate of you know just the number of technical changes that you can put into something and review and keep it consistent and moving quickly and still working. And so it was pretty obvious from a technical perspective that we would have to scale by you know uh, everybody talks about microservice these days, and I think you know Kubernetes is no ex- uh, no exception that. The point of breaking your teams up into something, breaking your application up into something like microservices is to help your teams execute independently. And so that's been something from a technical perspective that's underlain what we've done in the last year or so with Kubernetes, which is trying to scale the project and scale the technology by having a, a fairly consistent small core, making it easy to extend and build on top of. And we're kind of We've been going through that arc uh, over the last year and a half or so. This is something that uh, Red Hat contributors have been um, heavily involved in, mostly because um, OpenShift is a platform running on top of Kubernetes, uh, adding features, adding APIs. We were some of the first people to add new APIs to Kubernetes. We wanted it to be sustainable to build an experiment and run on top of Kubernetes. And so a lot of the grunt work that we do is about making those extension points real so that uh, custom resources, which is a really 
easy way to go add a new API to Kubernetes and then to reuse a lot of the same machinery so that you can um, easily uh, add your own infrastructure style API uh, to something like Kubernetes to solve one of your use cases. Um, that's something that Red Headers um, helped contribute to. There's a number of other extension points uh, at, the, at the node level to allow other container runtimes and we're getting really close to having some um, production quality um, alternative container runtimes, not just Docker, but things like Cryo and ContainerD. Um, some of the work um, that people may have heard about uh, from uh, RunV or Kata containers, which are about running um, running pods inside of VMs, so you have better security and isolation. So there's a lot of extension work that's been going on for the last, I want to say, year and a half, two years. And on the other side, on the community side, it's really about being very deliberate about how we uh, enable people to reach consensus and to have areas of clear ownership. So Kubernetes is broken down into special interest groups called SIGs, and each SIG uh, owns an area of responsibility. Uh, as the project grew, we tried to formalize the steering committee, uh, and so there were steering committee elections uh, last year. So there's 13 steering committee members, and the steering committee's job is really to just make sure that all of the SIGs are able to um, own and run the act of Kubernetes. And so the steering committee really is about delegating and ensuring that everyone in the community can make progress and build useful things, even if those useful things might not necessarily be um, part of that simple, small kernel of Kubernetes, but things in the community like Helm, or uh, some of the extensions that people have built around Kubernetes are projects that mostly execute independently. The code is owned um, by the Kubernetes community, but those groups um, are able to succeed and uh, execute on their own without necessarily being um, smothered by this central, you know, overarching technical organization because open source communities really do scale differently than giant engineering teams that companies do. And so, I think the community engineering part has been a little bit more subtle. Maybe not people don't realize, but there's a number of people in the community whose, uh, you know, for better or worse, entire job is making sure that others can be successful at building this kind of loose ecosystem of tools and patterns and um, support for building and running things on top of Kubernetes. And then there's, you know, everybody outside of the the directly contributing code to what we would call Kubernetes, who builds things on top of it, and they also need to succeed as well. And so making sure there's good communication and documentation, APIs, client libraries. Uh, so it's, it is an evolutionary process. I think keeping the core small and making extension really easy and making the community really scalable are really those three fundamentals of, um, of growing Kubernetes. So I, I have two things to add here. And, and Garrett, I want to ask you, so... NetApp contributed to the Kata Containers initiative, right? It's something that we've participated in. So I, I'm curious as to, can we get a little bit more of a, uh, a, a scratching the surface of what that is and why it's important? And then two, I think that was a, a really great overview and explanation of the Kubernetes project and how all of these things ultimately come together in order to, right, there's hundreds if not thousands of independent developers, some associated with companies, some not, right, et cetera, all contributing to make this project. 
But then we have the SIGs, right? The special interest groups. And NetApp is a pretty heavy participant in one SIG in particular. I guess you can guess which one that might be. <laughs> so, you know, how are we participating? What does that look like from our perspective instead of from the core Kubernetes perspective? Sure. Uh, so I'll run through the, the Kata containers thing real quick. Uh, yeah, so as Clayton mentioned, it's a way to wrap a container inside of a, a virtualization bubble, so to speak, since containers really aren't virtualization. They're namespaces and C groups that are isolating a process from the rest of the system. Uh, uh, the Kata Container Project was an effort to bring together uh, clear containers from Intel as well as Hyper into this uh, into this common you know project that would uh, take advantage of Intel's you know VT instructions to be able to virtualize fully virtualized containers and you know because there are some soft boundaries uh, associated with those namespaces that uh, have had that have had the more security conscious folks uh, wary and you know th I think. Over time, the community has been burning down those the security issues, and they become less and less of a concern. But there are still people out there who would rather see a full virtualization stack around these things for certain use cases. And so I think there's a place for both. And so yeah, NetApp uh, was part of the announcement as well um, with, with Kata containers. We uh, we think that you know, as Clayton was saying, the great thing is the underlying runtime is going to be able to change. Hopefully, at some point, you'll be able to even use multiple, and uh, you know, be able to choose how much. You know, isolation you want for an individual application, you know, depending on yeah, what it, it's more or less a fully isolated kernel for that particular container instance using what is more or less a virtual machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very lightweight though compared to the more heavyweight construct because it's not really designed to uh, have to do everything that a traditional virtual machine has to do. Sure. So the the storage special interest group that's one that we have a pretty heavy involvement in. Can you can you elaborate on that, Eddie? Yeah, sure. So we have uh, permanent members inside of that special interest group that are involved with helping, you know, set the roadmap, uh, working on certain features and whatnot. For example, uh, snapshot support. We were help. We helped write the uh, the architecture spec for that. There's been uh, efforts lately on uh, shifting gears towards uh, the CSI. As the uh, there's this Flexval plugin framework that evolved pretty early on, uh, that some vendors were getting involved with. Um, and uh, that kind of stalled out as uh, this more general multi-orchestrator storage integration problem presented itself. So there's been this effort to have a uh, something called the container stor storage interface, uh, which would allow basic primitive support for storage across multiple orchestrators. Um, I think that's still about, you know, uh, there's been some alpha code that's been written in for Kubernetes 1.9 to support some of the very basics there. But the good news for us is that we've, for a long time realized that you know we could step outside of the system and do even more interesting things with kubernetes in particular using some of the capabilities that clayton was mentioning right um you know it's it's a very natural platform to extend and so we built trident what almost a year ago it's just almost a year december 23rd <laughs> it's its birthday right um and and so trident is actually a controller it sits outside of the system it runs as a kubernetes deployment and it watches the api server and responds to requests in a way that i think is very natural for any kind of controller based you know uh system inside of kubernetes and through that we're able to provide dynamic provisioning just last week we released like cloning support as well uh, using the native Kubernetes objects. So I think it's it, Kubernetes has shown itself to be very extensible and we're trying to do things in a way that allows our own customers to experiment with these models and then 
through our work with the storage SIG, you know, move these models upstream into something that's that is strictly Kubernetes native, and that anybody could take advantage of. So, uh, I'll, first thing I want to ask is there's kind of four different ways that you can do dynamic storage inside of Kubernetes that that I see, right? So. One is FlexFalls, which is not the same as an ONTAP FlexFall for all of you NetApp people out there, <laughs> right? There's CSI, which is an emerging, right, kind of community standard that will be used across multiple orchestrators. There's the way that we did it with Trident, which is to set up a watcher on the APIs, right, and more or less interject ourselves as needed. And then there's the way that the other sort of, and this is where I'm completely unfamiliar, right? How are the other dynamic provisioners doing it? So, for example, the OpenStack Cinder driver for Kubernetes dynamic volume provisioning. So can you elaborate on that last one a little? Sure. Uh, so the difference is there's in-tree provisioners, which is what you're talking about in the, that last sentence. Uh, there's out-of-tree, which are FlexFall plugins today, going to be CSI uh, in the future. Uh, and there's external dynamic provisioners like Trident that operates more like a controller, um, is a controller. So the uh, the in-tree the provisioners are the ones that, uh, you know, there wasn't really a a plugin-like interface at the beginning, and so uh, with the clouds like AWS and Google and whatnot, um, they were able to kind of layer in their own functionality and you know, to have a native experience with Kubernetes and GK, with GKE or with you know Amazon and AWS with EC2 and whatnot. Um, and so there was always the cloud providers that were in tree, right? And then the storage providers started to add their plugins in tree as well. And so there's a handful of those that have gone in. But as a community, we decided that really isn't the place we want to be putting all of our drivers because, one, they're really hard to maintain that way, right, and keep up to date. Um, also, the facilities to test them are usually not present in the places where Kubernetes is being tested, like the CI system. So it's not a very uh, easy way to keep things stable either. So, um, and, and also, <laughs> like Clayton mentioned, um, it, having everything in the Kubernetes repo <laughs> is a real serious problem. So, so we're trying to get as much out of there as possible, right, to be able to move, move independently. So uh, the entry provisioners, as they stand today, are going to be moving out, right? And, and mostly they're going to be moving into in the storage space into probably a CSI-like plugin. Um, now, it's important to realize the CSI plugin itself is a very primitive interface. It's not designed to be the end-to-end -end experience in like a Kubernetes cluster for storage. It is the underlying kind of mount, unmount, create and delete primitives. You know, um, it, it's not going up into storage classes. It's not, if you're familiar with those concepts, it's not going up into like PVCs and PVs. It is the underlying stuff that is, if you're doing it the way Trident is doing it, already working. So, you know, we're not waiting for the CSI to come about to be able to give any kind of functionality that is that we don't already have. It's more like, where's the community going? And kind of how can we help more people get involved? So I think that's a, an interesting segue to what I wanted to ask about next, which I think applies not only to us, but also right, Clayton as a representative of Red Hat who's participating in Kubernetes, right? And that, yes, we are corporate entities who are contributing to an open source project, right? And a lot of times we do that where, sure, we want to capitalize, you know, we, or, or we want to emphasize our capabilities, but ultimately we do it to the benefit of the community as well, right? And like you just said, snapshots, right? Yeah, our platforms have done snapshots since day one for the most part, and we think that we're really, really good at that. But there's others that can do that. And having that functionality upstream, I think benefits everybody. So I, I don't know if you have any comments or if there's anything you can add around that of, you know, 
kind of to, to what Clayton was saying earlier, right, of community participation, right, stewardship of the project is important, not just, you know, how do we benefit ourselves best? Sure. Uh, just from my perspective, I, th- I think Clayton should chime in, too. Um, you know, we don't compete at the platform. We don't compete at the integration level. So Trident is an open source project, uh, you know, just like the rest here. Uh, we're using it as a way to experiment with the language that people want to speak when they're having these conversations with Kubernetes, you know, either from an end user perspective or from the cluster administrator's perspective. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're not trying to uh, have a better, uh, we're not trying to have capabilities in the platform, you know, that other people don't have and differentiating that way. It's more about how do we make this eventually consistent enough, (laughs) which is interesting, um, uh, that that people can rely on the platform to either have these capabilities native in a, uh, and perhaps we can do it faster, we can do it more cheaply, we can do it more efficient, um, uh, but you can expect these kind of native capabilities to be part of any infrastructure because like Clayton was saying very early on, infrastructure is boring. We say storing is boring. Um, And it's true, and it it should be the case because application developers are not going to rely on functionality that they can't expect to be in most places, right? And so for us, the important thing is, whether it's NetApp on the back end or something else, you can expect that to be there so that when we are there, we can, you know, we can give you that, you know, an experience unlike any other. And uh, I'll add, I think uh, the application, the language that, um, you know, application developers want to speak, I think is a really important part of what Kubernetes is, which is from the very beginning, the, the focus has been um, the goal of Kubernetes is to make it easy to run the applications and the patterns that people want to run. The fact that it's containerized is really more of a detail. Um, it you know, leverages something that makes testing things on your local laptop and in production the same way um, easier. You know, that's one of the promises of containerization. But at the heart of it, it's about trying to pick out those patterns and the language that most people need to do most applications and trying to make it really easy to describe that and to be predictable across many different environments. And I think, you know, Kubernetes, the, the thing that Kubernetes needs to be able to do in order to succeed is to continue to um, make developers, application developers, maybe at a low level, but also applications application developers at a higher level dealing with source code and um, standard patterns in an enterprise or um, getting things going really quickly. It needs to be able to give those users something that they can't get elsewhere. And as long as that's true, I think Kubernetes will be a fundamental part of the kinds of infrastructure we build. And I think if Kubernetes loses sight of that or can't continue to make it easy to run applications um, at scale, reproducibly, and with um, a reliability um, that really changes the game from an operational perspective, then um, Kubernetes will be replaced by something else. And so I think that's that's what we're trying to do with Kubernetes is make it a really simple platform that works well, that people can extend, so that people can um, tie, their, tie the new things that they're coming up with, things like you know serverless will come down the road, and, um, there's lots of exciting things people are doing with automating existing infrastructure software, um, like uh, Elasticsearch or databases as a service, where they're trying to make it easier to manage and build components of their application and to bring those in and use those really easily. Uh, and as long as we keep that virtuous cycle going, I think we're, uh, you know, Kubernetes will continue to grow because it will help people do their jobs more effectively. 
I just want to take a moment as an aside to say that you both said language for applications, and we're not talking about like Perl, Python, Go, right? And what the application is written in, we're talking about how to describe how the application is deployed, scaled, configured, et cetera, as well as how to capitalize on that underlying, well, infrastructure, right? How to take advantage of that. And infrastructure, infrastructure is really about making it easier to build software. You know, every level of, every level we've added in the last 50 years of software is really just about getting, um, doing something a little bit easier from compilers to open source operating systems to the open source distributions around Linux that, you know, there's a reason why so much production software runs on Linux and it's because it was the easiest place for people to run um, and consume high quality, uh, high quality components that make running these big and complex applications. It allowed the big players um, like Google and Apple and Facebook to create things and give them back um, so that others can contribute. And so that that cycle there, um, I, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, just like we think about Linux as a distribution today, that five, 10 years from now, we'll think of Kubernetes um, as having a kernel and having things like build systems and module systems that allow, you know, device drivers to come in, but to continue to innovate and to do things above that, because there's a lot of there's a lot of exciting things happening in how infrastructure software is changing uh, today to, you know, things that we couldn't have done. You know, I can scale up to 10,000 instances of anything on any cloud provider. Uh, and that, that kind of capability is something that we're just going to see more and more of uh, going forward. Uh, we need more tools to help us bring all that under control. And Kubernetes is trying very hard to be uh, one of those tools. So I'll ask you from or, or from the perspective of OpenShift, right? You're talking about how applications can suddenly scale to tens of thousands of instances. Are you seeing that more and more in enterprise or even commercial customers, and you know, even starting to invade more traditional applications, not just this new generation cloud native, quote unquote, right, uh, of application architectures? I think the dirty secret of software is that nothing ever gets thrown away. Um, it's just there's new stuff and there's more of it, but you've still got all that old stuff. Um, you know whether you call it legacy applications or whether you call it mission critical. Um, you know that's what we make money on. Uh, I think what we've seen is that anything that forces people to make a hard choice between I'm going to adopt this new paradigm and throw away everything old, um, you know, doesn't work because. That'll, that's great for some new stuff, and it'll grow, but all that old stuff has to come along. And so a lot of our focus um, at Red Hat on OpenShift and on Kubernetes is be able to run um, Linux software that's continued to run. Um, you know, we talked about uh, Microsoft's been very involved in the container ecosystem as well. Uh, I think, you know, at some days, not too far in the future, you might also see the same thing for Windows, being able to run older versions of Windows software on a containerized platform. Uh, being able to take existing applications and get the benefits of some of things like Kubernetes uh, means that operators and um, IT staff and developers uh, get to um, benefit from those tools. And at the same time, as we're adding new things like serverless and um, microservices and service mesh and all these exciting topics and technologies that people are bringing in, um, if we can just add a little bit of thought to how we can make 
much of that useful for people who still have to maintain and run those that old software. I think it's an it's a win win. So it's really about kind of spanning the spectrum. Um, everybody's doing everything and more of it. Uh, what are the kinds of tools that work across as broad a spectrum of that as possible? And so we've um, you know other things that Red Hat has been involved in uh, alongside Kata containers. Uh, projects like Kubevert, which is about actually running VMs on Kubernetes, so not not just containers inside VMs, but actually just running real traditional VMs on top of um, a Kubernetes cluster. And part of the idea for that is, you know, as you go forward, there'll always be things that it doesn't make sense to rewrite, and having those be able to benefit in much the same way of, um, you know, new containerized applications that you're writing that you know, can scale up or down. You might not scale that VM up or down, but you should be able to benefit from um, being able to resize it on demand or to be able to locate it uh, in a security group with your existing applications. Or, you know, maybe somewhere down the road, you might be running a big old traditional database and running serverless uh, function containers right next to it on the same machine, and no one has to know. And so there's always gonna be a lot of um, exciting things that happen. And I think what we try to do is spread that exciting around so that everybody gets a taste. So, Garrett, uh, I'll change over to the storage side of things now, right? And you and I have a lot of customer interaction, right? We, we talk to a lot of different people, especially on storage administrators, storage, right, architecture, the, the infrastructure side of the house. Uh, so all of this is predicated upon a pretty... Um, we'll, we'll say a pretty big jump in how storage is consumed for most storage administrators, right? I, I was in Australia a couple of weeks ago, right? One of the things that I talked to our, a lot of our partners out there about is, you know, who, who's the only person in the organization who's probably more stodgy than the Oracle admin? It's the storage admin, right? And we're used to provisioning storage in, we get a request in, whatever ticketing system you happen to be using, right? We get a request in, we spend a couple of days deliberating on, well, how much of a hard time do I give them for requesting this amount of storage, right? We spend a couple of more days figuring out where we might want to provision it against, right? And then eventually a week or two later, we get around to provisioning it. And that bit of storage probably lives forever, right? At a minimum, it's years. Whereas in this paradigm, we're talking about things that can be created and destroyed constantly, right? I, I mean, the average lifespan, I, I would actually be really interested to figure out or find out what the average lifespan of some of these volumes are, because I would suspect it's significantly less, like potentially hours or days. So uh, kind of from your perspective, right, you have a, a much uh, a much better title than I do. You talk to a lot more senior people than I do, right? So <laughs> what, are you seeing anything different? Are you seeing, right, are you hearing other things from, from the uh, customers that you talk with? Well, I don't know if this is the title speaking or... <laughs> Um, no, I, you know, we talk all the time, obviously, but the, uh, yeah, it it is certainly a concern for, for customers, uh, that are used to having very fine grained control over the infrastructure that they provision for their, for their users. Right. Um, they want to be able to, uh, understand the requirement and figure out how to deliver it. And they want to make sure that they're not going to be impacting the rest of their infrastructure when they do it. And, you know, they're, they're trying to get all those considerations into account. And I think, that's the way things were done, you know, more or less almost exclusively like five years ago or, or, or so, right? And I think over that time, we've realized how boring that is, right? And um, we're, what we've tried to do as a company um, is, is automate 
the hell out of all that, right? So that we can make sure using, you know, all sorts of different technologies um, that we're doing that job for you. So you as a storage admin can focus on, you know, the more important things to the business, which is how do I make sure I have enough of this infrastructure? How do I make sure that I have the, you know, the right capabilities so that people can just consume like they do in the cloud? I mean, there's a reason why Shadow IT kind of came about, right? Shadow IT being this idea that you go out to like a public cloud or you get your IT from somewhere else other than the traditional, you know, in-house IT shop. And that's because of these kinds, you know, these conversations were hard to have. And it took a long time for you to be able to get the infrastructure you needed to run your app. That's time wasted. That's time when, you know, uh, time to mar- in, an, in an era where time to market means everything, right? Um, you just cannot wait around for that kind of thing to happen. And so what we are trying to do, a, a big part of our job is to make sure that we can allow people to consume infrastructure the way you're used to in a cloud, uh, but in in a manner that the business is comfortable with at the same time. Yeah, it's a conversation I have a lot when when the focus is around DevOps, right? Of storage administrators, historically, right, we, we make our mark or we derive our value to the business by providing peak efficiency out of that storage device, right? Because it's probably, if not the most expensive single device in the data center, it's up there, right? They're, they're significantly more expensive than things like servers and even a good chunk of switches that are out there, right, or routers. So, you know, yeah, we want to manage where every byte lands on every platter of every hard drive so that we can maximize that efficiency. But the other side of that is also what happens when you lose data, right? It's a really bad day. So, yeah, storage admins are tend to be a really stodgy group. And... You know, one of the things that I talk about around DevOps, around, you know, consuming storage in this manner with containers, around automation, around all of these other things is, well, yeah, you can be, it's okay to let it land wherever it lands. And if that's wrong, great, you can move it. It's okay. Right. So stop focusing on low priority things like provisioning storage, offload that, and instead focus on the bigger picture. Um, And it tends to have a pretty dramatic effect on, you know, as you said, right, time to market is key. Right. Let's get to market first and then figure it out. Right. And the I cool thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to add, I think that's a great um, way to also describe Kubernetes isn't about um, re-implementing all of the same problems that people have had solved for 10 or 15 or 20 years. It's about letting um, the people who have that expertise um, bring their side of the table. So you know, storage administrators, um, network engineers, bring that to the table and let let that self-service of applications go up a notch while still providing, you know, the control and the ability to understand what's going on. So again, it is about it's about automating the intersection of the various specialties in a way that lets people get on to actually creating business value, not um, spending all their time fiddling with uh, configuration management and never delivering anything. So we've talked a lot about storage, a lot about all of these other services inside of Kubernetes and all of that. So. Uh, you know, I, I know that we're coming up on time here, right? We're we're at about the 40 or 45 minute mark. So Clayton, is there other open source projects that you're inter- interested in, right? You know, Red Hat's with OpenStack, excuse me, OpenShift, right? And Kubernetes participation, um, heavy community participation there. I'm sure that's not the only things that you pay attention to, though. Yeah, the, one of the most exciting things, I think, and for anyone who visited KubeCon this year, nothing of what I'm about to say is a surprise, but uh, the Istio project, which was started about um, about a year ago now, I think, is um, an open source project um, started by some folks from Google and IBM and Red Hat and others around, and Lyft as well, um, which is about making it easier to 
uh, and one of the core ideas of Kubernetes is you, you you have a somewhat generic declarative language for what you want your application to look like. When you start getting into more complex services, um, you know, over the last couple of years, we've had this uh, transition from, okay, well, if I've got all of these services running, um, I need my service-oriented architecture. I need tools and libraries and frameworks. And, you know, just like we always do in computing, rather than taking something that worked before, we rewrite it all. Um, you know, this time we're hopefully learning some of the lessons. Um, but Istio is about taking some of the uh, tools that many people have been building into their microservice applications, into their frameworks directly. Things like service discovery and um, client-side load balancing, failover detection, um, you know, patterns like um, patterns like uh, failing, uh, having a failure detector that uh, captures the last responses from a remote server. And these are tools that, as your applications get bigger and you have more pieces, you actually need because tying all this together by hand is really frustrating and irritating. And so Istio is really the uh, uh, taking Kubernetes and other platforms as a base, making it easy to uh, run a sidecar proxy with your application. And so they can use Kubernetes to inject a sidecar proxy. Your application doesn't necessarily have to change that much, right? You don't have to add all the language specific um, libraries in that do all that client side stuff. Instead, you can kind of run this simple, efficient proxy, which is, uh, in this case, Envoy, which is a project um, that Lyft donated to the Cloud Native uh, Computing Foundation. It's just a simple, dynamic, powerful, um, efficient uh, sidecar uh, proxy, um, like HA proxy, but on steroids for changing config. And so the combination of those two, kind of the infrastructure level and the sidecar, means that um, you can take a bunch of applications and you don't have to build all of the microservice bits into your app. You can focus on the core app. And then the sidecar and Istio help um, connect them all together, help your clients discover stuff, and um, allow you to pull out of that those connections information about, um, about how many requests a second you're getting or getting information about uh, which services are failing and to do uh, reconfiguration dynamically. So if you lose you know, a whole cluster um, the Istio side can say, oh, you know, I lost a cluster and I lost all of these machines. Let's go ahead and cut all of those out of the mesh. And so then your services just react seamlessly without your application code having to restart, um, without you having to build all of this into your application. So I think um, Istio and the idea of service mesh is kind of one of those, um, everybody's kind of talking about it. And I'm hoping that this year is when we'll see that project, um, you know, hit its first um, its first releases where it's really available and open to anybody who wants to run it on top of Kubernetes or off Kubernetes. And I think that has the potential to really take that next step of, you know, we're trying to come up with a language for defining applications, um, kind of breaking those down into key APIs, like I want this policy to apply to this microservice. I want to do authentication and authorization outside of my app, but still have it be part of my app definition. I think, you know, over this year, we'll really see that take off. So there's a lot of other stuff down the road, but I think Istio is, has the chance to make the biggest impact to developers' lives um, this year and next. The exciting thing for Matt, the exciting thing about that to me personally is that, um, you know, everything you described is really what I would call like a cross-cutting concern and uh, in that many apps, you know, have these requirements, authentication, encryption, authorization. 
And um, it's better to let the experts focus on those really hard, difficult um, concepts and technologies to get right and let the individual businesses focus on the app they're writing and not have to worry about that. Um, and then you, you, you get the whole industry's best practices around these, uh, these technologies. And, and that's just really, really exciting to me. And, you know, I, I hope there's more dimensions of that code sharing and um, this really cross-cutting concerns of, you know, the, the, that we will find over the next year or two. So, Rippy, um, yeah. you were at Q- Cube con yes and you you did something cool there um yeah. could you tell us a little bit about what you gave a talk on there sure yeah um i was very lucky to get picked to do a lightning talk um the lightning talks were on tuesday right right before the main main events festivities started on wednesday um had about five minutes to talk about my project and um what i had done was i took three watches that were running android wear um the Watches were rooted. I was running a custom Linux distribution based off of Asteroid OS, which is um, a distri- it's a Linux-based distribution you can look up. It uses Open Embedded and Yocto to do its to do development on it. Um, and the Lightning Talk was I, I got Docker and Kubernetes running on these three watches, networked them together, and was able to do a live demo of an application I wrote um, to demonstrate um, a service deployment scaling up uh, across three watches. Um, there was a lot of interesting problems they hit. And uh, as Clayton was actually in his keynote, he talked about the problems OpenShift was seeing at very large scale and how they've been able to improve for the whole uh, the whole world um, the Kubernetes experience based off the problems they hit at large scale. I was hitting a lot of sort of similar weird issues at small scale uh, with going with that, um, as you might imagine. These watches were, they had uh, four core, half a gig of RAM, four gigs of storage, and they're ARM-based. Um, and I had a laptop running that was running CentOS. I had two a two-node Kubernetes cluster running the laptop, and I joined the three-node uh, watches to the cluster and was able to do um, Kubernetes work. So that's what I demoed live. <laughs> and uh, I, I've heard, I think the lightning talks recorded. And if they are, I'll, I'll uh, update my schedule, my, um, my talk notes with a link to it. And I'm sure we'll probably get it on the podcast or something, but uh, it was really fun. And it was, it was really exciting to get to go and talk about that. So did, what, did, like, what sort of practical application besides just running in the cluster what, what did you have? Or Practical. <laughs> I, uh, I want to know what uh, good this is going to do the world, Rippy. <laughs> yeah, so actually these, these watches, they have, um, they have microphones. Um, these three nodes, these three-node watches were actually authenticated nodes. Um, so they could control the cluster as well. Um, I, I could have, in theory, used voice recognition, but it was hard enough getting the getting them joined and authenticated, so I didn't have time for that that stretch goal. But that was one of the thoughts I had. Um, you could also imagine um, Kubernetes secrets. Uh, they were since they're joined to the node and the services that are running on the uh, on these watches, they could have access to Kubernetes secrets. So um, that was another use case. Another use case potentially would be um, if two of these watches were you know co-located near each other and both happy, you could like. Maybe you have to have two of these near each other to be able to to do something destructive to the network, like upgrade it or something. You could, use, I mean, obviously there's other use cases. You could use other technology for that. But these are just a, a few ideas I had. Um, I, I also, I mean, I since they're running the Linux kernel, um, I, you know, of course I had NFS and iSCSI running on them as well, you know, because that's that's what I want for my watch. Yeah, that's what yeah. I want for my watch too. <laughs> yeah, can you call Batman? Um, oh, that's a great idea. Not not yet. Not yet. No. Uh, can you mount a flex group? 
<laughs> yes. And the answer is always yes. 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 Um, so, you know, it, uh, it, it did take quite a while for me to get that uh, to work. Um, it was a lot of kernel hacking in the sense that I had to, uh, once or twice, I had to find some, some patches and apply them, or I had to disable and enable a lot of different features in the Lynx kernel that were like really on the edge that I never played with before. Oh, I forgot to mention that I had a weave networking set up between all of the nodes. So I had a software defined network defined uh, across them all as well. Yeah, we're making fun of it, but I mean, to an extent, but the, the thing is, this is actually super cool, right? I mean, it's super powerful. You're, you're, you're bringing the control plane, this preeminent control plane that has become the, you know, multi-cloud standard, right? And bringing it not just to servers, but all the way down to IoT devices that could be living anywhere. You talk, you, and you combine things like what we were talking about earlier with Istio and the service mesh, with things like swarms of IoT devices, with you know things that are living in some data center somewhere, maybe near those IoT devices, or all the way home somewhere else far away, and tying all that together. I mean, I don't think you need us to tell you how powerful that could be. Yeah. And um, I should also add, these things are actually, they're not running X11, they're running Wayland. It's the Wayland compositors for the, for the UI. The UI I wrote on, on the front end was a visualization of my services getting deployed across each of the watches. So the watch, one of the watches was red, and then as the service deployed to it, it went blue. So you could see all the watches turning blue. Um, but you, know, you could also use it for that, for visualization of your cluster, as you were saying, like to see, is my, is my cluster happy? Just glance at your watch, right? Um, it's authenticated, it's part of the no- node, it's a real node. So you, that's another potential good use case. It could also receive notifications as well. So you could uh, have pop-up alerts, et cetera, right on your watch. Yeah, and there's lots of practical applications. I mean, you're looking at it as a mobile device of sorts, right? So, I mean, it's good to have something you can take with you so you don't have to stay in the office or, you know, be chained to a laptop. I mean, this is, this sort of thing allows you to have more flexibility in your overall day-to-day work. Yeah, and again, since it's running, it's running in, you know, a real Linux kernel, yeah, I was running WPA supplicant. Uh, it could be on a VPN. You know, anything, anything you could think of in Linux, I could run on it. All right, uh, Rippy, that sounds pretty awesome. I expect you to <laughs> deliver them to my desk immediately. Um, thank you so much to Clayton Coleman for joining us today. Uh, I know he has a busy schedule of eating biscuits and drinking coffee <laughs> um, that we're taking him away from. Uh, so, if you want to find Clayton, uh, how do we find you again? Smarter Clayton at GitHub or on Twitter. All right, and. Uh, Garrett Mueller, how do we find you? I am Energy on GitHub and Twitter. And Rippy. At JK Rippy. All right. And no one cares about Sully. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we love Sully. <laughs> we love Justin. All right, Sully, how do we find you? Because we never we never talk about that, do we? Isn't it, it? It's somewhere. It's on It's on every single show notes. All three yeah, of them. Yeah, but we never actually all, talk all about it. All two of our Twitter handles. Uh, all two of them, yes. Yeah. As well as in the closing at Poor, NetApp. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but if you want to reach us individually... Yeah. Andrew underscore NTAP. There you go. All right. That music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast.netapp.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontechpodcast.com. If you'd like to share today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Smarter Clayton, Mr. Clayton Coleman, for joining us today, as well as Jonathan Rippey and Garrett Mueller. And I guess I'll thank Andrew as well. As always... Thanks for listening. I got to start thanking you for joining us because you're never here. This makes two in a row, just for the record. It is. So, no, now that... uh, Way to to close the year out strong. I am done traveling for the the foreseeable future, so that means I get to be here. I will say that Garrett and Rippy have been on probably as much as you in the last year. Plus, I've been getting a lot of complaints about leaving you by yourself. I know, they're like... Some adult supervision. Yeah, they're like, dude, this guy, you got to help him out. 
lots of Messy. driving off into ditches. And... Messy. Actually, I drive off the ditch less when you guys are not here. I'm do I do it to impress you. 